0: Hi, this is Brian Choi with the Food Institute, and welcome to the Food Institute podcast. This week, we are speaking with Dr. James Richardson, founder of Premium Growth Solutions, a strategic planning consultancy for early-stage CPG brands. He's also the author of Ramping Your Brand, a book focused on how to ride the CPG growth curve, which we'll be discussing today. But first, whether you are a first-time or regular listener, we ask that you share this episode on your social media platforms. It helps us expand our reach, and we really appreciate it when you do so. So with that said, I'll welcome James to the show. Uh, how are you today? I am great, Brian. Thank you for having me. Yeah, excited to, to bring you on board. And, um, you know, first want to say that I really enjoyed reading your book. Um, and uh, I think a lot of the, the content in the book it's going to be extremely relevant. Um, you know what, not just, you know, as a, you know, as a C like an early stage CPG company, but I think there are, are also applications if you're a larger, um, you know, food manufacturer as well. And so, you know, we'll definitely talk about, uh, those concepts as we go through the, the podcast. Great. So, um, so James, you have a very interesting background, a very diverse background and, and so, um, you know, please share with our audience your background, your current role, and uh, the reason why you wrote this book.
1: Sure. So I'm a, I'm a cultural anthropologist by training. I, I'm an academic refugee, so to speak. Um, luckily, I, I sort of quit on my own before <laughs> they quit on me, <laughs> which is always the way you want to run your life. <laughs> um, and i went into market research because that seemed like the best bridge for my my brain at the time this is about 2002 and joined a little boutique out in seattle um, called the hartman group and uh you know we did some we were lucky enough to be sort of a startupy kind of culture um with an ADHD founder. <laughs> so that, that allowed us to, I mean, that has a downside, but I think the upside is that we did a lot of experimental projects. And so we actually found a niche in, in, uh, growth strategy with specific companies like Kraft uh, and, uh, um, Hershey's and a few others. So conagra brands. So We were able to, I specifically was able to take some of the behavioral theory that I was trained in, and a lot of that had to do with symbolic analysis, which is referred to in my book quite a lot. And we were able to help folks modernize their portfolios through uh, various kinds of planning engagements. Sometimes that was brand specific, but a lot of it was actually at the corporate strategy level. So it was a lot of fun. We ended up doing some projects that actually impelled me to quit. <laughs> uh, oh, really? Okay. Uh, in a positive way, which was, uh, we had some very big blue chip clients who wanted to really understand how to refine a playbook for the early stage brands that they were acquiring,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and they were willing to spend the money to do the the data science on that. And no one had really ever done it in the industry. And if mm-hmm. Nielsen and IRI had have done it. They certainly haven't published it. I don't think they have either. So anyways, we bought, we bought $150,000 worth of Nielsen data um, <laughs> and we did it for our clients. Um, these are large randomized early stage uh, sort of data sets. So we're talking, you know, thousands of natural organic brands selling below a hundred million dollars. So this is the whole, this is that 10% of the money in the, right. pre, in the natural organic world. It's like 5% of the money out there Mm-hmm. which is this this mosh pit of early-stage companies. And most of them are selling below a million. If you've ever looked at a Nielsen or IRI, revenue-ranked right. Revenue list, that the long tail goes on like an Amazon catalog. You know, it just never ends. Right. But none of the companies make any money, right? <laughs> so, you know, this was a blue-chip. The blue-chip client in question was trying to understand, well, how do we pick better in our minority investments with these really tiny companies? Because it's like this chaotic soup of... And the metrics don't mean anything right? right like getting like velocity growth when you're five hundred thousand dollar trailing revenue company uh, that doesn't mean anything about your future mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, right. Right? It, it, it's great for the present because you could hand that to the next retailer and sell yourself in but uh, long term that doesn't mean anything right. right so they wanted to create us a, a, a smarter set they wanted to add a set of variables that weren't in nielsen data so we invented this metadata application process. And I think the Hartman group still sells that service. Um, it's fascinating, but I think what we learned about, we learned some general principles about what grows, uh, and they had to do with product design, which I know you wanted to talk about today. And so some of the stuff that went into the book came out of that work and it had to do with understanding, um, the counterintuitive simplicity of product design that will come at a premium price, but grow really fast. Right, w- without you know millions and dollars of advertising, w- right, w- which is the only hope for today's entrepreneur, because who, who isn't j- just a rich guy, right? So I mean, right. if you're Lance, if you're Lance Collins, you just pump out serial winners because you have a network and a capital base that c- you can get anything to fifty million dollars, right. right? That's right. not most people, so and honestly, it's not most brands that investors are going to find, right? Because they're only going to write certain kinds of checks. Right. <laughs> I have yet to see a venture capital firm, and I, we won't see one that's going to write a thirty million dollar capital check to a five hundred thousand dollar trailing company <laughs> because they just love the product so much.
0: <laughs> so,
1: it's, you know, you laugh, Brian, but our listeners at big co, what do they do? They spend a million and a half on pre-launch work. Right. Two million sometimes on product development fees, market research, c- crossing T's, dotting I's, sending PowerPoints up the chain, nielsen Basie's forecasting. And when all the stars align, what do they do? They assign $30 million. Right. So right. it's not like there aren't companies that will assign a big check with no market feedback about the right. product. And this right. is the thing. when 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 I left... When I stopped working for big co-innovation teams, specifically earlier in my career, it really started to dawn on me how crazy the whole model was.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was like the biggest form of like Vegas gambling I've ever seen. <laughs> but instead, but it, it's like not only did you have card counters, but you had like a rack of other specialists who would be studying, you know, everything else they could about the casino to game it, right? Because right. The, the theory was to go spend... Crap loads of money right off the bat before you had right. any data from a real human being about whether or not your thing is remotely interesting. Right.
0: And um, that's why, that's why we've seen a lot of, a lot of these acquisitions <laughs> and these checks, you know, when the checks yeah. get sent out a couple of years later, you know, a lot of these big CPG firms end up divesting them at a, at a loss, right? Because they haven't spent the time understanding the consumer. Right. And so there's yeah. a lot of wasted, wasted money. Uh, well you'd be so su- what I think you're right, Brian. And I think that it's so funny because
1: I've worked as you can imagine, I worked post acquisition mm-hmm. at big firms studying some of these acquired businesses for them and trying to help them um, optimize the acquisition. And it, it was amazing the the um, the lack of consumer behavioral intelligence that you know these companies had. Uh, and yet you know, Piper Jaffray would be out there selling or hawking it all over the investment world. Right. So <laughs> right, now right. now maybe and 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 so you've got this betting going on, which is based on fairly high level data, Nielsen data, velocity stuff, and some other financial valuation alchemy. And that's the basis of most of these transactions, Brian. It's not mm-hmm. it's not a deep understanding of ah, this is a skinny pop and here's why. So, anyways, mm-hmm. we the book was inspired in part because I kept meeting, I kept meeting founders with like eight-figure businesses who knew nothing about why they were growing. They had no answer to why, Got but they it. were, and then they were going to go spend money on you know, you know, half a million dollars on marketing or raise a whole bunch of money, and you know, it it just it realized I'm like, why is everyone guessing in the early stage? There's no need for this,
0: right, right, right. 100 so, agree. <laughs> yeah,
1: but 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 we have to have something better than we have to have something better than what I would call the that two million dollar pre revenue overthink, right? Which, which I honestly used to. I mean, that my paycheck came out of that overthink, so right. it, it right. paid my the overthink paid my mortgage for years. So I think <laughs> the the but I realized it was overthink, you know, because until you have your product out there, even a line extension, you're kind of kidding yourself to think that you know what what you even have, right. I mean, it, it, there's no survey of people that can tell, predict what it's going to taste like if they've never tasted it. Right.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so this book is really, you know, as you said, geared towards um, early stage CPG founders and entrepreneurs, right? So is it fair to say, you know, we're talking about a million, well, you, there's different stages of growth that you mentioned in the book, but correct, but um you know, the majority of the focus is kind of like five million less, with with an emphasis on especially on the really early stage, as founders are thinking about their growth strategy and and, and launching. Is that is that fair to say, James?
1: I would say I wrote it for that group, okay. um, but I also wrote I wrote it knowing that there'd be other folks who would sort of be leaning over their shoulder reading it with them, so to speak um and and what's been interesting is that as you might suspect i get calls from people who want to you know they're at 8 million or 10 million and they want to get smarter about some of these things especially why their business is performing the way it is and i I think most of the principles of the book will will help anybody at any stage on the way to scale up um quite frankly so i i it was written for that, that, that larger group just because, um, if you can, if you can learn some things about your business that are non-traditional as an entrepreneur and the, and a lot of this has to do with your fan behavior, then, um, then some of it has to do with your planning and how you approach strategy. The data would suggest, um, strongly, although I can't prove it scientifically, uh, no, that you're going to grow faster and longer, and with a better chance of scaling. You know, in other words, it's ironic because the people who tend to invest money in like optimizing and correcting the early stage business have hit have hit a problem generally between like twenty and forty million. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so they're hardly startups, right? right. And, and that is not the optimal time to come in and like do cardiac bypass surgery (laughs) right the time to do it the time to do it is is in the early years but what i found you know is that you can't um i get people calling me brian who want to you know they're pre-revenue a little more on the risk averse side probably some of them are refugees from big co so you know they got (laughs) they got brainwashed by risk aversion um you know so they can't fully extricate from that mentality and they want to work with me and i'm like i It's just, it generally doesn't, it's not productive, you know, Mm -hmm. because we need, we need to have your thing out there. We need to have real data. Um, and it's easier to collect that than ever before. That's what's blowing That's what blows my mind. Um, Mm -hmm. it's not like 1995 where I don't know what you would have done. Right. I mean, you would have had to do field marketing. I've been the only way to issue a questionnaire. Right. Or any kind of feedback. Um, but it's actually so easy. (laughs) Um, and you don't need rocket science data, right? But I think getting people to realize that you got to get closer to consumer early on. If you want to optimize these businesses and up your chance of, you know, surviving and and scaling. Um, that's
0: my mission. It's not always successful,
1: (laughs) (laughs) but but it's it's my mission.
0: (laughs) And it's important. You know, this is, you know, I think the, the principles that you lay out, lay out in the book not only every entrepreneur, but like, you know, they, they need to know this stuff, right. Because it'll save a lot of headache. Right. Um, and years, years of time in, in ramping up, you know, ramping up their, their businesses. And, you know, one of the, th- one of the things I liked about in, in, in the early part of the book, you know, you, you talk about these various growth trajectories of, of companies slash product sales. Right. And, you know, you talk about the big co CPG growth model, the skate ramp, the uni- unicorn path, the wheelchair mm-hmm. path. Um, you know, can you describe for audience like what what these various various growth models are, and what you see as the quote ideal and most common growth trajectory for a successful startup CPG company? Uh,
1: sure, yeah. So I think uh, you know, I think the the public firm audience on the podcast will recognize the big co growth model because it's the one they live right. and breathe and and that is the line extension of the known legacy trademark with high awareness and high household penetration so it's relatively um safe bet to extend off those brands and and that is about firing stuff out to pretty basically maximum acv in the first year turning on advertising or trade marketing or both um and then crossing your fingers um <laughs> uh, and now if you really want to get cynical you know, and I think not to cause people to leave the industry because that, that's not my intent, but there, there is, you know, when you get up into the finance world of these companies and the people in the marketing team don't always interact with these folks, but I can tell you there's a finance model at CPG companies. Um, they know how to monetize a failed line extension. I know that sounds crazy, but they can they monetize failed business launches all the time. And I say failed because they're never there after three years, right? You go back.
0: <laughs> right.
1: You go back to the store and like, where did that go? Right. It was delisted, my friends. Um, but they still made money off it. Right. And that's why, so people used to, I, I answered this question. I used to annoy my clients with all sorts of extraneous off-scope questions to learn. And that's what I used to do. And this is where I learned this stuff. It's like, well, if the failure rate's 80% plus for line extensions, why do people keep using the exact same process? And it's like, <laughs> well, it's a failure because it doesn't stick around, but we make money off it. <laughs> You know, right, right. <laughs> so, so yes, it's a failure, but not really, because if we just have a pipe, if we have a pipe full, right, then we can make money. So that's that launch, instant distribution, uh, pretty robust marketing budget on day one. Um, and you actually aren't, it's not a model about long-term survivability, really. I mean, sometimes, sometimes it is when you have a big new brand bet. Like when Activia launched in two thousand six, you can be damn sure that the people in France were intended that to survive, right? And mm-hmm. and to be honest, they they um they supported it, and they didn't just and they they launched that in a very different way. But that's the primary path in big companies because um, there's a way to monetize that. But that's not growth, Brian. Right. That's just that's um.
0: I like to call it monetizing product fads because it's basically what it is, right? And it, it seems like it's a lower risk, like compared to if you're oh, early, yeah. right. Oh, so yeah. it's, it's a lower risk model that that not doesn't that doesn't guarantee earnings, but it, it's 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 a high probability that given that you've already had successful mm-hmm. product in the past, you're just kind of adding an, an additional product. There it's
1: financially that, efficient,
0: yes. Product innovation oh, right.
1: because right. it's coming out of the same plant. The plant paid off thirty years ago. I mean, right. Not to sound like a you know car owner, but I mean that's basically the model, right? So it costs you nothing, almost nothing to to devote some runtime to this line extension. Mm-hmm. Your sales guys can sell it in their sleep. Um, it's just <laughs> so easy, Brian. Right? <laughs> What's terrifying is you know, and I still don't. I once wrote a white paper and I, I just drove my team nuts because we were like, I'm like, no, we need to look harder. There can't be just two. Mm-hmm. We found two, this was in 2013, we found two case studies of new brands that were launched internally at a public firm and food companies that grew to scale, grew to at least nine figures and kept growing hmm. and were still growing at the time we wrote the white paper, right? In other words, they were they were the skinny pops of their time, right? right. One was journal in 1995, mm-hmm. was one of the most successful packaged food brand launches in the history of American food industry. Because it wasn't based on, a, you know, the early phase of the American food industry it was actually a bunch of entrepreneurs who then sold. I mean, mm-hmm. we forget all this, but that's what this, Mr. Right. Lay, Mr. Lay. Yeah. Right. Dude, dude was an entrepreneur. <laughs> so he wasn't some big corporate dude. He was an entrepreneur making potato chips in Texas. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we forgot about that wave because it turned into a bunch of holding companies, but mm-hmm. you know, very, very few of these companies are able to do what DiGiorno did, uh, what Activia did in 06. Um, and those are probably the most successful examples that we found. I mean, DiGiorno, clearly. Right. right. And and I, you know, I don't you know, although I focus on natural organic because that's where the innov, that's where the unmet demand is in terms of the popul- the population right now, in terms of people willing to pay a premium price.
0: Mm-hmm
1: for for food or beverage or beauty or whatever it is um you know these things have happened at big companies before it's just they haven't and i never i never got the answer i mean i know the activia story was be a european company and come to the united states that that's the mm-hmm. answer because <laughs> european <laughs> multinationals think differently than multinationals mm-hmm. in new jersey That's it's just end of story <laughs> and part of that part of that is the stock market in europe right Right. It's not quarterly. Right. So that, that's a huge help. Um, but I think that the terror that I would see in the eyes of people who wanted to try to do something with a new brand. I mean, it, it literally became this game as a consultant, it became a game of sort of whack-a-mole the objections mm-hmm right? <laughs> right or you know it just never ends because the whole basically no one wants to do it so they just throw that's when you know you have an organization that's allergic to change is when right. they just throw up objections right without I mean they're almost unconscious objections right and most of them are totally irrational you know I think so I think the the industry moved towards acquiring these innovative brands but I think what what I try to get at in the book is there's, there's There's no reason you can't do this internally from a creative perspective. Right. From an intellectual perspective, absolutely. The question is politically at a big company, can you get an entity to take the risk to build these things? And I think the answer is basically no in most of these companies. So we're left with acquisition, but how do you acquire more intelligently? Well, your acquisition strategy should be no different than your design strategy. Mm -hmm. You're going to look for the same things and they're not i mean they're sometimes correlated to pos or scanner data performance
0: mm-hmm.
1: um but man i can't tell you the number of brands i've seen that were smoking hot brian up through 20 30 million and boom suddenly they stopped growing hmm. right, right. <laughs> and now founders will often complain well i didn't get my capital raise or da, 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 but i i've networked with a lot of these people and you know in many cases especially I'd say before five years ago, many of those stagnation, stagnating brands, they actually have a, they have a symbolism problem. They have a product portfolio problem. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, they captured a niche, but the niche did not extend to other larger addressable markets. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think this is where, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example off the top of my head, which I didn't put in the book. But it's not coming to me. I mean, I think there are, um, and I can't default to my client work, which is a pain. But the <laughs> there are ways you can take something that's stagnant, say at twenty million, mm-hmm. tweak, tweak the symbolism, tweak a bit of the formulation, and turn it into something that's going to grow really fast with the right application of resources. I know that sounds crazy, but it's almost like if you think about going to a prom or something, you know, the symbolism, your costume, right? And it seems superficial. Like, mm-hmm. how, how important could the front panel symbolism be? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right. Well, actually right. quite, quite important. If for some reason you build a $20 million business targeting, you know, what I like to make fun of in the book is sort of this neurotic, paranoid wellness consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've mm-hmm. met these folks. Um, I've interviewed many hundreds of them <laughs> right. and they, they don't provide good word of mouth right. because everyone thinks they're not. <laughs> I, mean, I mean i mean i hate to be rude but they, right. they do so it's like there you know vegans used to be this crowd until they developed this urban hip version of themselves i call them mm-hmm. power power vegans <laughs> right. who work who work at ad agencies to make three quarters of a million dollars a year but anyways so before when the old vegans the first gen vegans were a classic group that they couldn't market ice to to um to the inuit right right (laughs) because (laughs) because their whole they were so hardcore so extreme basically offensive right um like any other extreme or militant group and so they don't end up and so if you dress your pack if you dress your otherwise tasty thing in that kind of veneer Mm -hmm. you can actually get to 10 20 million pretty easily today but then you'll hit a wall right every single time and it doesn't matter what kind of check you write Mm. (laughs) right you know um and i'm not even sure it matters if you get like a sean mendes to endorse you Mm -hmm. if it's dressed in that weirdness right so i talk about weird in the book because it's there's a lot of stuff that scales today to eight figures that's still got all this weird weird symbolism um weird flavors even right and you can you can still manipulate that stuff and tweak it and get the thing ready to go i mean a lot of the if you look at like the history of the products that showed up at Expo West, and you'll still see this, um, uh, you know, virtually in their virtual shows too. I'm sure uh, you still have people who will be attracted to the the extreme weird of the wellness world, right? And, and they will be. And these people are so passionate, you know, and right. and and, and they get so excited, yes. and mm-hmm. they're so passionate, so excited, but they haven't got they haven't got the basics of how you design something that's scalable, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think I wrote the book in part for, to help those people correct a few things early on when it's easier. Um,
0: James, you wanted to touch, I wanted to touch up a little bit, um, you know, going back to these, these growth. Crowd, yeah, I, right? I'm sorry, I, do, I um, do No, no, it's, it's completely fine. Um, and so, you, you know, you describe the big co, you know, which is an immediate growth in, in, in revenue and it kind of like tapers off and then, you know, um, and there's really not much growth, uh, after that. And then the skate ramp, which is, which, you know, it's, it's an exponential growth, right? And, and so, um, you don't really get the initial huge boost as you might with the, with the CPG growth model. Uh, it's a, it's a slower ramp, but then over time, it just, it just grows exponentially. The unicorn path is, um, is just huge growth upfront. Right. And I think, you know, uh, you, you bring up a, you bring up the example of, um, um, a, a boom, a boom, chicka pop, right. As, as, as an example of that type of growth. So how, like how many of the the companies that you advise or you observe kind of are able to, you know, represent that skate ramp versus a unicorn path and even the wheelchair, you know, the slower growth, steady wheelchair path. Like if you can get, kind of give us a, give, give us a little bit of a, um, a description of that.
1: Yeah, so in the early stage, you basically have, like you said, you have those three paths, and and the ones that scale, generally, ninety nine percent of them in in my old research followed one of those three. But what we found, interestingly enough, um, uh, up through twenty seventeen at least, was that seventy five percent, at least of the sample that we looked at, that made it to nine figures and stayed there and didn't collapse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Rode this skate ramp of exponential growth, and so then we were compelled. And about twenty-five percent crawled up the okay. wheelchair path. You know, they just slowly went. And it's really different difference between linear and non-linear growth, Brian. That's what the book is exploring. And how do you create? Um, how do you create that differential which will cause exponential growth to happen? And when we looked at the brands and how they went to market, we. You know, the book's not based on founder interviews. I don't know if you noticed that.
0: Yeah, no, I I didn't notice that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's not a single founder interviewed in my book. Um, And, you know, some are, I'm sure there's some who are castigating me right now for that. But the reality is that I'm a social scientist. So I, I have, I possess a primal arrogance. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to say it. A primal (laughs) arrogance not associated with my personality. It was associated with my training, um, and that is individuals can't explain their own behavior because I spent nine years in a field where that's the basic assumption, right. um, and I and I believe it even more now having gotten that training than before. So I, I don't believe there's any founder. I don't. Dan Lubetzky can't explain to us why a kind bar succeeded. <laughs> it's his baby, <laughs> right? Right. He's too close to it, right? But the main reason is not even that. It's that he, well, founders don't spend their time doing the pattern analysis that would allow you to figure anything out, because that's what academics do, right? (laughs) Or consultants, right? And that's who I am. So, I, um, the difference between the skate ramp is not. It it was a more complex puzzle when we got into it, Um, and it's it was very clear to me that. Several practitioners of the skate ramp had no idea what they were doing at the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, no clue. I mean, it literally happened. It happened despite them. <laughs> right. um, or, like in the case of Kindbar, I think it really was an interesting, it was a classic example of having the correct intent vis a vis the marketplace that caused the organization to make the right investments in an undercapitalized brand. Mm -hmm. That would then get the enthusiasm, get the consumer to work for the brand Mm -hmm. and build the thing. And those were sampling and field marketing,
0: Mm -hmm. right?
1: And we saw that pattern everywhere amongst these skate ramp brands that, that would grow exponentially. In other words, when we tied it back to the math, we're like, what are these guys doing across all these businesses, generally speaking? At least three quarters of them, that was our standard. What are they doing that's causing the velocity to continue to grow? Mm-hmm. For years. Right. I mean like forever. Right. Right. So because you know, if you look at a lay's potato chip, you know, with all those facings built over in all that presence built over decades. Right. They're able to spew they're able to sell on a store basis, you know, hundreds of freaking bags a week. Right. <laughs> through their right. DS di- 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 through their D di- now that didn't happen overnight. -hmm. That built over decades and it's probably still building, right? Right. It's at least building with population growth, (laughs) right? For every baby born, Lay's gets its (laughs) shares. Right.
0: It's It's true. true. Numbers don't lie, right?
1: (laughs) So, but the question is with the early stage brand, how do you get that velocity? grow because if you look at the data this is what we found when you look at the data people the average early stage brands it grows it grows distribution velocity tax grows distribution Mm -hmm. velocity tax grows distribution velocity tax and at Mm -hmm. some point the velocity basically hits a wall right and so for every store that they add they just get the same units per store per week and it becomes this weird all they start the brand starts getting driven by salespeople. right because it appears that that's the only thing that's working Mm -hmm. But in reality, the brands that ran the skate ramp, what they're doing is that they invested in out-of-store activities. They invest, they had better product innovation, better product symbolism. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And sometimes that is by accident. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Um, And they're generating word of mouth in ways that the, you know, I would call it boring specialty food Z is not doing. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: For whatever reason, right? So... By looking at the contextual factors in a patterned way, we're able to deduce some best practices—a sh- very short list—and most of it's in the book. Um, right. The rest of the magic comes down to understanding your offering in the context of the, it that is, and how can you create a playbook that will grow velocities? Right. And so okay. that's you know that's basically my professional occupation right now is sort of that art form, and I think the uh, it's an experimental thing. That's what I don't mean. Because I think you write a book on something and I think because so many people write business books that are just sales sheets. Yeah. I mean, literally, I, I read one this summer that was literally like every page was like, and my <laughs> trademark, boom, said, I was like, oh, come on, man.
0: <laughs> and that's what I like about so... the book. Because <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's refreshing because it's not written by one of these founders that... Have a very skewed view <laughs> on on their own baby right and, well we're, and, we can and,
1: i guess we can say this on the food institute, but we'll i'll take I'll run with you Brian, because it this is probably the only podcast I can say this on i, I just i tire of founder interviews Brian yeah. <laughs> that's the politest way I can say it. What I say to my wife is not polite, but <laughs> the point it it it's false data, right. I mean, the way I look at it is, <laughs> this is how I can, de- I should probably use this as a client interview question. Would you, if you want to learn about a famous person, do you want to read their autobiography? Or do you want to read the biography? I want to work with people, obviously, who read, who want to read the biography. Right. If you just want to hear someone talk about their life, that's great. I mean, it's very entertaining, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but but the idea that you're learning about how they tick makes no sense to me. Right. That's just propaganda, right? So, I think the, anyways. So I think the the growth paths that people have are limited if you want to get to scale. And we found that the skate ramp path was the most effective bet. The problem, (laughs) the problem Brian is you have to wait for scale, and this is what the the math's very simple. Um, It's actually not new, I don't think, but the patience is lacking. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's lacking at big companies. But the weird thing is once I got out of the big co consulting world, it's lacking in the entrepreneurial world in a way that I just makes my head scratch. I just mm-hmm. don't understand. It's like you have all this freedom as an entrepreneur. And one of those freedoms is to take
0: your time. Right. I think part I just, of it is just, it's just <laughs> the, the greed, right? Cause they're, they're I guess. probably <laughs> like left the big co they've left the cushy job and now they're earning no money. And they want to, they want to scale as quickly as possible. So they end up making decisions that forego the long-term growth. That, I, that
1: I, I think there's been more of that, um, you know, and it's ironic because there, we have a couple things going on in the early stage universe. One is the rise of the, what I call the professional entrepreneur, but that's a person who's scaled at least two businesses. Mm-hmm right? Like, or at least one, right? Mm -hmm. And so they go do it again. Mm -hmm. And that person I can tell you is very attractive to, to private equity. Right. VMG and, and, you know, Kavu, they all know those guys. They they have their, I mean, they have a Rolodex of everybody who's one and because they want to work with them. They want to be, they want to invest in their next thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's one crowd, very interesting group of founders, super tiny, by the way. Right. I actually, on my own, I actually went, when I was writing the book, I looked for a list, tried to create my own list of what I believe are true serial entrepreneur geniuses. Mm -hmm. And and I have my list and it's six people. (laughs) That's a very small list. And yes, one of them is Lance Collins, who I made fun of earlier, you know. Yeah. The the guy, and he had a really he had a huge failure in the nineties before Fuse. I mean, he had a at least one business just totally blew up in his face.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's what I love about the guys because he kept going. Right. And then he won. And for whatever reason, he's figured out a, a thing. Um, I think he just happens to be very intuitively smart about innovation. That's right. my personal that's my, I mean, that's his actual genius more than anything else. And I think there's very few people who are like that. The, the founders of um, the snack factory. They're mm-hmm. another one. I apologize for not remembering their names because they don't do PR. They're not mm-hmm. egomani- they're not egomaniacs. <laughs> no, seriously, they're they're entrepreneurs and they're very good. Right. But right. there's very few people who do it again and again and again and again and again. Right. you you were referring to this influx of people who I think who have left big companies um, and want to go try this. On their own but you're right they some of them have not really gone through that whole psychological like what are you really signing up for <laughs>
0: right it's a very um, different world right and yeah and, uh...
1: but i also meet impatience from people who don't come from big companies I'm sh- i've been shocked mm-hmm. and i think i i try not to blame it on greed so much as just our culture it's a cultural problem Brian. Mm. Like I don't think it's I don't think it's an accident that Dan Lubetzky, an Israeli, an Israeli American, was patient enough to grow kind. That see that doesn't that to me is explainable.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) You know because you know he had a huge dose of non-American cultural influence. Right. Same thing with um, uh, Hamdi. Mm -hmm. He's an immigrant. Mm -hmm. Different. Different makeup, di- different view of the future.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not the typical American-born entrepreneur, right? Or, and I think Silicon Valley is really the worst model. You yeah. know that is that because pe- they get a lot of the media time, right? So, so even I meet, I constantly meet people who who actually are using Silicon Valley tech startup jargon right. as they're planning their food startup, and I right. and I and right. I know they're getting they're not getting it from business school; they're getting it from the media, right? Sígísi um, is another one. Siggy, oh yeah, well is, the Icelandic man. Right. So it's like right. we yeah. see a pattern here. Right. <laughs> I, and I hate to be pro-European, but you know it's not a total accident. Yeah,
0: that's a very that's a very interesting that's a very perceptive um, you know comment because you know I don't I don't think there's enough um, you know research out there about the cultural influence of of, uh, you know, some of the, the most successful companies. Right. And, and um, but I want to, I want to um, kind of uh, focus a little bit more on these kind of the, 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 the formula, you know, and you talk yeah. about there, you know, there, there are five different things that you, that you mentioned in the book, but, you know, um, as you look at the kinds of the world, the siggies, you know, those who follow that unit, you know, the boom, chicka pop, what, What are the key elements that were so critical to their success, you know, and um, if you can kind of share uh, some of those, uh, those elements uh, with our audience, that would, I think that would be great.
1: I will, I will, Um, but I can't resist correcting you because you just gave ConAgra, they're collabing right now because you. You swapped out skinny po- uh, boom chicka pop for skinny pop. Um, oh my! God. Wow. <laughs> but but boom chicka pop did ride the skate ramp. It's mm-hmm. really interesting in its okay. own way. Um, the uh, the I talk about some laws because um, I don't know. It just seemed like the right way to describe what what I've seen in in large data sets that I've reverse engineered. So I think the most important one right now in early stage CPG is that you can't just launch like a a clean label product, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that um, the natural version of this, the organic version of that, right? It's all been done uh, and, not, and it was all done 20 years ago <laughs> for the most part. I right. mean, I, I think I know about a handful of categories where it hasn't been done where there might be some promise. So generally speaking, you have to do something more innovative than that, but it's, it's a bigger issue than that, Brian. It's that, if you're launching something on the basis of it being more pure than I don't know, Doritos, (laughs) you are, you are talking to a not very important group. Right. (laughs) And I'm just going to say that. Um, and yes, they run one of the largest trade shows. So, um, or did, or whatever's going on. (laughs) So, um, and I think that's been a, it's not my clients get it. I think most people get it. Um, but I think that some people who come to the entrepreneurial world through that natural products funnel do not get it, mm-hmm. and so so I still see too much me too innovation out there, um, you know, based on that misunderstanding. So you've got to do something with your formulation,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or your formulation, or your format. Mm-hmm. Or your formulation and your format and your packaging design, right? right. <laughs> to create something innovative symbolically in the category that's going to command a premium price and has to be about more than purity. It's got to be something else. Mm-hmm. And historically, this was the specialty food industry because mm-hmm. a lot of that stuff is actually pretty processed, right? If you flip the labels over, right? It's kind of interesting, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, not not so true. much anymore. Not so right. much anymore. But on the like, if you go to the if you go to the stuff like my favorite used to be Patak's Indian sauce, you know, massive brand in the UK it would process to the nines, you know, cause it was a mass, I mean, it was a mass market consumable in Britain, you know? Mm-hmm. So it just, yeah, they wanted to make money. So um, I think uh, you've got to have something that is going to shake up that category. And that is really the art of product design. Now what that is, and this is the thing that what that is, is, Originally, when you launch, that's a guess, but we don't know that that's actually the right thing. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of people who launch thinking that their edge is X, like, I don't know, sustainability or how they source their ingredients. And in reality, the consumer, the fan is telling them quietly something else. Right. But if you're not listening or interacting with your consumer, then you can develop, and I've seen a you know, marketing, entire marketing strategies that are based on the founder's understanding of their thing, not, not why people keep buying it. Right. So and that, you
0: talk about this in part two of the book, right? Where yeah. you, 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 you know, you, you describe these product launches as, you know, quote, experiments where creating tests, testing, iterating. And I think that that's a huge part, you know, that's a huge part of understanding kind of what, what uh, what's going to ultimately work? Because you're right. You know, if you're a founder and you have a certain idea of, of what the product should be, how it's going to scale, um, and you're not really listening, that this part is so key. Like listening to your to your to your customers, talking to them, getting multiple data points, and you might end up with a a formula that's different from what you originally yes. thought. And so I think, I
1: think the problem, the problem is that the problem, I, you know, I had writing the book and I'm very self-conscious of it is that most of the case studies I talk about did not necessarily involve that process amongst the founders. Mm-hmm. So some could point to that as a weakness, which is like, well, um, look, these guys did it and they didn't do any of that. And I mm-hmm. think, well, that's why so few people scale. Right. <laughs> is my point. <laughs> that's my, my retort is, well, that's why it's rare. Right. When you don't when you don't deliberately do it, <laughs> so, um, but I would argue that someone like Siggy was actually very experimental the way they managed that business. They were yeah. very, very
0: careful. I remember meeting so. the, the founder uh, a couple of years back, and he was he was just describing you know how he stressed just started making yogurt in his in his kitchen right and and uh, and it took a while for you know for people to um uh not only test it but also like the flavor because the flavor pro- profile is very different from, oh yeah you know from from a Yo play, right it's very different and you gotta you gotta get used to the flavor profile but over time people you start liking it right because it's less sugar because yeah yeah you know it, it it's it's uh you know a little bit more thick than than the uh than the convention i'll call it the conventional brand
1: yeah i mean i think Siggy's. i i love that brand for so many reasons which is why um because there was patience right because there was actual in it there was the right kind of weirdness (laughs) not the wrong kind the weirdness was it was sour right but but it was like but the consumer was the beauty of it was the consumer was embarrassed that they didn't like yeah right like i should be more okay with this (laughs) <laughs> but I'm not. Why is that? Right. And so they almost sort of talk themselves into getting used to it, at least the early adopters. Um, Cause the, you know, low sugar was kind of, I mean, was mainstream in beverages, but when it launched, but not in food. Right. And so getting, getting people to get their tongue and their nose used to less sweet foods has been this journey in right. every category. Right. And he started early in yogurt, um, which was a massively oversugared. I mean, it's, I mean, Play has cut their sugar a ton since then, by the way, yeah, um, but it's most still, people are very sweet to me, you know, yeah, I mean, well, so...
0: my, my taste pattern is, has changed over time, but it's still, <laughs> it's still very sweet to me, uh, but it
1: is. Yeah. And I think what, what Siggy's also did well, which, you know, is another one of the laws I talk about is, is they, and this was more of an accident, right? Cause it was just his passion for the family yogurt. Right, um, uh, was that they they had formulation anchoring, which is what mm-hmm. I call it. In other words, they had their low sugar slash weight management signal. You know, their attribute outcome signal that was really powerful was embedded in the formula.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right, because if you don't make the skier like skier, you don't get that, mm-hmm. and. It created something no one in their right mind would have chased. So he had no competition. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, without, you know, and big companies were aware that he existed. Right. Right. And they just ignored it because the gross margin on skier sucketh. <laughs> right. Because it takes four gallons of milk for a gallon you get. Right. And that's not how you make money in refrigerated yogurt. So, no, I'm serious. So, I mean, it's one reason why he ended up selling to Lactalis because that's a multinational dairy conglomerate built on global low margin.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like they get it. They know how to do that. <laughs> um, Danone is not interested in that. <laughs> so, so um, But he had, but think about that insulation. Right. And so you know that's a little extreme because I, I wouldn't I wouldn't I certainly don't advertise that people go for crazy low margins, right <laughs> when they when they're broke and have no money, but there's something about anchoring your formula however it is in a way and margin isn't the best defense mechanism mm-hmm. but it's one,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know if you're in a category where people where everybody all the incumbents you know they wake up in the morning and they're like sixty percent gross margin, uh, and you you're launching something innovative at thirty five they're not going to chase you. Mm -hmm. They're not even going to chase you with a line extension. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So in business strategy, these are important moats sometimes. And you've got to making sure that your symbolism is embedded in proprietary, co-man controlled R&D that no one else has and is unlikely to reproduce is totally underinvested in. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I don't understand why.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I just don't understand why because in the world of early stage, people just don't It's hard enough to, it's very hard to get a co-man to do a proprietary formula.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So if you can get that going, it's going to be very hard to copy it. That's what, whereas if you go like Ryan into the world of like extruded snacks right now, where Mm -hmm. like everybody, everybody and their cousin has like a a lentil puff. (laughs) That's an example of not anchoring in a Mm -hmm. formula because anybody with an extrusion pellet gun can do that.
0: Yeah. James, right. I, wanted, I wanted to, to uh, bring <laughs> up an example, you know, that you bring up in the book and it's, it's a company called the power, right? Yes. Um, can you, so you mentioned- They still, they
1: still like me
0: apparently. After. <laughs> <laughs> so, so can you walk, uh, walk us through these five elements, but using that, that example. You Ooh, know, the laws, like, yes. And going through the laws. What? What? Uh, yeah. If you can just define those define those laws in the context of Kali Par, I think that would be very helpful for us. Our- so
1: Kali Par, to be fair, is what I call the unicorn. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one thing I noticed with early stage unicorns is they have they observe a couple of these laws, Brian,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which partially explains, well, if not entirely explains, why they grow so crazy out of the gate. Aside from good management, um, I will say that launching a unicorn is a, is an exhausting. Sales challenge. I mm-hmm. mean, to open open up stores that fast. But anyways, uh, definitely the law of n plus one. Sure, Kali Power is a natural product with clean label. But that wasn't the point. The point was a low carb, plant based crust that wasn't you know this diabetes inducing refined flour crust. Right. That's the whole point. Mm-hmm. So check yeah. low high stakes consumer outcome, weight management. Uh, check. <laughs> Right now, this was one of those brands where I didn't. Kept, the founder was never talking about that. Gail was never talking about that. I don't think that was her interest. Her interest was in better nutrition. and mm-hmm. right? It was a, it was like a classic New York dietitian nutrition kind of thing. Right. <laughs> um, but you know, great example of where I think the founder's motivation may not have been the most important thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. But what consumers are saying is we already know symbolically that anything that had net carbs that low in a high carb category would catch people's attention. Right. 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 Cause you're in, you're inverting the expectation with the package symbolism and people are going, Whoa, are you kidding me? Now, the second thing is that the pizza tastes really good.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I remember, I remember being at Expo East when that launched and I'm sitting there going, Oh God, here we go. I'm, <laughs> you don't want to follow me around at a show, Brian, I'm such a curmudgeon, but the, you know, I always, just <laughs> I have very low expectations and I was blown away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I knew that, oh, wow, this will get good repeat mm-hmm. because it's got, it potentially is weird, right? Like, mm-hmm. why are they talking about cauliflower in my pizza? That's not a, there's no cauliflower in the Domino's menu. People have put cauliflower on their pizza. So this is really strange. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's cauliflower crust. Okay. So, you know, you, th- it has a potential to backfire. Mm-hmm. But, but they did well on the sensory. So that attribute outcome symbol, symbolism happened to be timed, I think, pretty well in the marketplace because, um, as I showed my book in the internet chatter around cauliflower, low carb dieting was already steadily growing in the five preceding years. So they hit this timing. Um, and that was beautiful.
0: Mm.
1: And obviously they anchored the symbolism in the formula. Right. Now, now this is not a defensible innovation. That's the problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, in a way, they probably were smart to hit the gas like six months in, which normally you would never do. Right. Um, but they had explosive, I, I mean explosive velocities. And when you're getting explosive velocities in the first six months, and I mean velocities on par with the market leaders in pizza, like maybe right. one or two rungs below DiGiorno. I'm I'm sorry, when you're getting velocities like that in the first six months or like in skinny pop is the same way, then you have a big choice and it's a lucky choice. You can hit the gas with capital, a little capital, um, and then just go for the, just ride that unicorn or, um, you know, you can do the skate ramp path if you'd like. The problem is I think they were smart in a way, which is they realized they didn't have a, there was no defensibility. right? So I, I probably would have done the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's not what I recommend to the average founder, um, but it had to do with their innovation. Although it hit a bunch of these laws, it was also very focused. They didn't, in the first two, three years, they didn't like fire out 12 categories of cauliflower product. With... <laughs> um, it's, they're, they're branching out now, but I think not in originally. So it's a very focused pizza, pro- pizza brand. Um, and honestly, that's the only way you can be a unicorn because you couldn't your sales team i think would probably lose its mind.
0: Right. Right. Not to
1: mention your operations people trying to like keep track of st- when when things are growing that fast. I mean, we're talking just below the level of a line extension in terms of distribution ramp.
0: Wow. <laughs> so it,
1: I mean, it's not going to 90% ACV, but these things are going to 50-60% in a year and a half, two years. I mean, that's crazy for an independent company. Right. That's insane. That is insane. And so they and they only chased it because the numbers were just I have another client I can't talk about is in the same situation in other categories. So it does happen, but it's less than 1%. Right. <laughs> so, so when I talk to people about these laws, yes, Kali Power hits most of them, um, but you're probably not going to have that kind of market timing. You're going to be more like Siggy's, right? Mm-hmm. Which had this amazing thing, but they were, they were t- probably 10 years ahead right. of the average college-educated person's true level of interest in desugaring their food. Mm-hmm. He was way ahead. Right. Why? Because the dude's from Iceland and he was eating like an Iceland dude. <laughs> so to him, this was normal. He uh, he obviously wasn't running to 7-Eleven doing Big um, big Gulp every morning. Right. After his yogurt. So it was just it was not his thing. So being the, cult, being the cultural alien gave him all this – Crazy advantage, right? Because he's almost like the anthropologist, going, right. oh, these Americans! These Amer- look at them stuff the sugar in their mouth. These Americans."
0: So, yeah, it's just no, to it's, him, it was obvious. It's it's interesting. <laughs> I think the um now in in the market. So there's there's two things going on, right? One is the the ta- the the pace of change, right? And especially with the yeah. with Gen Z and 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 millennials, like the rate of, of uh, these consumers wanting something new and different it's very uh, would you say that it's very different than you know 10, 15 years ago? like I, oh yeah, I, I find yeah, myself I, wanting to try new new products much more now than even even just five years ago right So well this adventure adventurism sort of mentality that's you know that that's one aspect and the second aspect is y- y- you have a much more diverse, population now right and, and so when yes. when consumers have when when founders are, are trying to formulate this product it, it it it's not it's not as easy as it was five ten years ago right and, and so the flavor profiles the the different formulations it, it you know uh it has to be different it has to be something unique it has to stand out right and and you do mention that in your book um the flavor uh, is one of those
1: interesting ones too i yeah. think because and I'm with you, Brian, I think what we're seeing, you know, what we're seeing, not to, to go jump back to my old field is field—is that we are going through a, a demographic shift due, due largely to two forms of immigration. Right. Um, one is the, well, I, for lack of a better word, exploited underclass mm-hmm. of, of Latino immigration, um, and then you have uh, this global UN sort of college grad tier
0: mm-hmm.
1: people coming in with good income, good education, um, um, for various reasons. And many of whom do become American citizens on fairly short order. Um, and, and that has exploded in the last 20 years. And we also have the birth rate differentially high, um, in non-Caucasian groups in the United States. So what's happening is what's happening is the assumptions of big, big co about, what what is a normal flavor have shifted? Mm-hmm. Uh, now there, are, I think the big companies have been tracking this. I know Frito Lay has always been on the forefront of that. Um, they're not flat footed around those things, but it flavor is still a, a bizarre thing because I find in a lot of categories, despite these trends, like in yogurt, and no one's been able to sell weird flavors in yogurt, despite mm-hmm. all of this. Um, and I think it has to do with the cultural dynamics of that category. So I do think that. While flavor, while the cultural diversity is definitely ratcheted up Mm -hmm. and it will continue to be more diverse, um, there are, um, what it means, I think, is that there'll be more fragmented consumer demand than ever in food. And that scares the. Be Jesus, out of the primary listeners right of this podcast right because they work for big companies that want massive scale efficiencies they want to be off plants that produce one to two million units a day mm-hmm. you know they, you know this is right that's their world like right. they don't want to hear that people that taste preferences are fragmenting right because there's it becomes less efficient to service that right and i i don't know where it leads in terms of the industry but um it could lead to a more a new generation of holding companies that simply are willing to deal with those that those audiences. Right,
0: fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, this is uh, <laughs> this is fascinating, and uh, yeah, I wish we I wish we had more time, James. We're you know we're coming up to, to the hour, but you know um, you know perhaps we can we can follow up with another podcast and talk about parts three and four, you know, of the book and. Great. Um, yeah. But, uh, so this wraps it up for this, for the food Institute podcast, James, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and premium growth solutions and how can they purchase your book? Well, they can definitely go to amazon.com right now and type in ramping your brand.
1: Um, uh, be honored if you purchased a copy. Um, if you want to learn more about what I do, you can go to PremiumGrowthSolutions.com. And if there are any founders listening, then they, I encourage them to go to the founder resources page on my website and take my quiz. <laughs> in which I will brutally, brutally judge them. No, I will help them mm-hmm. understand <laughs> whether they're ready for exponential growth because it—you have to get ready for it. That's what I've learned.
0: <laughs> right. I, I definitely recommend the book. Um, it's uh, I found it very resourceful, very you know to the point. And 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 no BS, which is which is the way I like it, right? And so, it's very clear that you know what you're talking about. You come at, you come at it from a from a scientific uh, angle, which I really appreciate. Um, and so, um, we'll definitely share the relevant links to, in the description of this episode. So once again, I'd like to thank James for his time today. Uh, Remember, if you're new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share. If you'd like to learn more about the Food Institute, please take a look at the links in our description to learn more about us and what membership could do for you and your company. Until next time, this is Brian Choi, signing off.